You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's finally here. Today is the day the Your Brain on Facts book hits the streets. Check with your local bookseller from a safe distance or shop online at bookshop.org or amazon.com. Two-thirds of the book's topics are things that have never and will never be on the podcast. It is family-friendly, so get your copy today. We predict complete societal collapse only within a year or so, linked to catastrophic failure of the food supply chain, a researcher writes. Annihilation of most humans and non-microscopic life on the planet would follow a prolonged period of starvation, disease, unrest, civil war, anarchy, and global biogeochemical asphyxiation. What's the catastrophe at the heart of this doomsday thought experiment? The absence of bacteria. My name's Voxy, and this is your Brain on Facts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We can't see them, but they're all around us, and on us, and inside us. Our personal microbes, not to mention those in the environment, have us outnumbered by orders of magnitude, but scientists are only beginning to understand how they influence our health and our world as a whole. We humans, along with most multi-celled organisms, are meta-organisms, made up of our bodies and all of their associated microbes. Kind of like Voltron, but squishy. No matter how isolated you may feel, you're never alone for a single minute. There are more than 10,000 different species of microorganisms living symbiotically with each human body. This is your microbiome, and it's essential to survival for each of us and for all of us. Recent research shows that the microbiome actually provides three times more genes that contribute to human survival than the human genome does. You might have heard the statistic that for every human cell that makes up your body, there are 10 microbial cells in or on you. A 2016 review of four decades of research into the human microbiome found that there is really no evidence to back that number up. One study found that for a 25-year-old man standing 5'7", or 170 centimeters, weighing 150 pounds, or 70 kilograms, there would be about 39 trillion bacteria cells living among his 30 trillion human cells. So the ratio is probably closer to 1.3 to 1, which means that slightly more than half of the you that is you when you think of you is actually not you. One of the most important and definitely best well-known things that the microbes do is help with our digestion, but they do so much more than that. A huge proportion of your immune system is actually in your GI tract, says Dan Peterson, assistant professor of pathology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. For example, certain cells in the lining of the gut spend their lives excreting massive quantities of antibodies into the gut. From birth, your microbiome also helps to inform your immune system of what microbes are good and what microbes are bad. Not content to work only in the gut, 
these microbes can also communicate with our brains. Ever have a gut feeling? That's your microbiome talking. Gut microbes can't get into the brain due to the blood-brain barrier, but they do have ways to get a message up there. One theory is that microbes may signal the brain through the vagus nerve, which connects networks of nerves in the gut to different parts of the brain. Nerve cells are activated by chemical signals called neurotransmitters, like serotonin, which regulates mood and appetite. Certain gut microbes can produce serotonin themselves, which stimulates the vagus nerve and, by extension, alters activity in the hypothalamus and other parts of the brain. Where did your microbiome come from, though? Science used to believe that babies picked up their microbiome during the birthing process, meaning they were essentially microbe-free in the womb. However, there is now evidence that the gut microbiota may begin even earlier, as both placenta and meconium, the sticky, tarry first baby poop, have been found to have their own microbiome, even in babies born prematurely. Your gut bacteria may also be inherited. A study of 11 generations of mice, beginning with mice captured in the wild, found that the 11th generation had essentially the same gut bacteria as their wild-caught ancestors. For a modern human, that would be like having the same gut bacteria as an ancestor in the 1700s. Microbiomes really are a family thing. In a study published in Science, scientists cataloged the microbes of seven families by swabbing their hands, feet, and noses, as well as doorknobs, light switches, and other commonly touched household surfaces. Each home had a distinct microbial community, and the scientists could even tell which home a person had lived in by matching the microbial profiles. Three of the families moved during the study, but it only took about a day for their microbes to get settled in at the new house. Speaking of family, we got a review from Casey V, who writes, I have been listening to Your Brain on Facts for about a week now. I cannot recommend it enough. Moxie is a great host. I personally love history, but Moxie makes me love it more. Every day my brother and I sit and listen, and every day it brings us closer together. Togetherness and learning. Can't ask for more than that. When most people hear the word microbe, they think of germs, pathogens, viruses, and other nasty little microscopic things that we want to keep off of our skin. Our skin is the first line of defense against infection, and the microbes are actually a key part of that. An NIH study examined mice that had been born and raised to be completely germ-free, which left them with weak immune systems. The control group of mice had normal microbiomes with their diverse mix of microbes. The germ-free mice were exposed to Staphylococcus epidermidis, one of the most common bacteria on human skin. You might be expecting me to say that the clean mice were immediately overrun with staph, but quite the opposite. Adding this one species of bacteria boosted their immune function in their skin. Outside of our bodies, we have harnessed good microbes for things that we will then put into our bodies. Without good microbes, you wouldn't have yogurt, cheese, pickles, beer, and a ton of other yummies. Before the groundhogs went after my garden like a family reunion at a golden corral, I was able to harvest some cucumbers for pickling. The only suitable way to eat cucumbers apart from tzatziki. Don't at me, it's true. One way to make pickles is to put things in vinegar, but that's barely making pickles. 
For that, you need fermentation, lacto-fermentation specifically. Lacto-fermentation works because bacteria that make us sick can't handle the salt involved in the process, but the bacteria we want for the process can. Those good bacteria are from the genus Lactobacillus, a word that you might see on your yogurt container. Lactobacillus bacteria convert the natural sugars in fruit and vegetables into lactic acid, and it's the lactic acid that preserves the food against bad bacteria and maintains the flavor and texture. It's worth mentioning that lactobacillus pickling is a short-term preservation. The pickles will still need to be refrigerated or canned with heat, just in case the odd rogue baddie survived. Not only does lactobacillus keep our food safe and delicious, it's good for our gut biome. Yogurt and pickles for all my men! Increasing evidence suggests that fermented food have health benefits beyond those offered by their original ingredients. For example, during milk fermentation, aka cheese making, unless you're in Mongolia, then it's boozy mare's milk, but that's another show, bacteria produce a blood pressure-lowering compound known as angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, or ACE inhibitor, so it could help with high blood pressure. Please do still take your prescription, though. Lactofermentation is so much more than Vlasic and Yoplait. You ever had kimchi? I regret buying my husband his first jar of this spicy fermented Korean cabbage slaw because he started putting it on everything. Kimchi contains a variety of amino acids and other bioactive compounds that have been found to reduce heart disease and fight inflammation, possibly even fighting infection and obesity, though probably not if you're putting it on a cheese quesadilla, Bobby. Lactofermentation can also help our bodies to absorb some nutrients better than the non-fermented food, and there's evidence that it may help improve insulin sensitivity and blood sugar control. Lactobacillus is also why lactose-intolerant people are often better able to tolerate yogurt than milk. And bonus fact, the tolerance of lactose after infancy is believed to be the most recent step in human evolution. Now you can't talk about fermentation without talking about yeast, especially during the present and continuing COVID crisis, when we're all baking more than we have in a decade. Once the stores ran out of prepackaged yeast, many of us turned to sourdough, which relies on wild yeast and bacteria to leaven the bread when those microbes eat sugars and expel CO2 gas from both ends without so much as an excuse me. They also give off ethanol, very nearly all of which evaporates at baking temperatures. But what would happen if you had grain and moisture and yeast and didn't pop it in the oven? You'd have beer. To tell us more about it, our fellow podcasters who happen to also be certified beer judges, Izzy and Steve from Everything I Learned from Movies. Hey everybody, I'm Steve. And I'm Izzy. And we're with... Everything I Learned from Movies. And tonight. Oh, tonight. Oh, Moxie with uh, Brain on Facts podcast basically invited us on to uh, talk about, well, one of our favorite things. <laughs> uh, we're both BJCP certified beer judges, and there's been a lot of talk about microorganisms in the news and stuff, but... What? Yeah, we want to talk about <laughs> one of our favorite microorganisms. Yeah, botulism. Wait, yeah, what? Oh, no. What? <laughs> no, no. Say no, no. to botulism. Just say, say no. no. <laughs> uh, we're talking about brewing yeast. Woo! <laughs> the sucker biases. Uh, you know, any interesting tidbits about uh, the history of how we came to know what brewing yeast was? 
Well, uh, pretty much any time a culture started developing cereal grains, which are anything that, you know, have like the wheat and the germ and all of that, uh, if it got wet, all of a sudden it started uh, bubbling and fermenting and tasting really good, making us forget our sorrows. Yeah. They have actual like chemical evidence that they were making beer 7,000 years ago in Iran. Nice. Truly the cradle of civilization out there. <laughs> right? I mean, hell, China didn't even catch on for another, like, 3,000 years after that. Oh, jeez. Yeah. No. Well, and you may be wondering, well, what are yeast? How, how, how do they turn it into beer? Well, yeast are these little single-celled organisms. Uh, they're so small, 20 billion, with a B, of them weigh one gram. That's that's a lot. What they do, uh, they do this process called fermentation, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, if you want to get super, it's like anaerobic respiration or something like that. Oh, Elton Brown explained this super well in his yeast episode. His yeah. is about bread, but bread and beer, honestly, basically the same process. Yeah. Just one of them, you uh, you use a solid and then you halt it by heating it. The other one, you let it, you keep it a liquid and you let it go. But uh, essentially, the yeast get in and they eat the sugars that are within the grain. They burp out CO2, and they um, excrete alcohol. That's right. (laughs) Good old ethanol. Take in the carbohydrates and release carbon dioxide and ethanol, which is, of course, the alcohol that we drink, which is amazing. Yep. Um, yeah, see, you mentioned, uh, like, kind of the same process with bread. Uh, that's what causes it to rise and all that. But yeah, beer and wine, kind of the same process. Yeah, so yeah, just quick fun facts about brewing. Uh, we could go into more depth, but uh, I think that's Moxie's job. So yeah. Yeah, hit us up at everything I learned from movies at EILF Movies on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, and my lovely wife, Izzy, has some incredible art online, too. Yeah, we're everything I learned from movies. We love bad, questionable movies, and so I've made some bad, questionable art. <laughs> you can find that all at untidyvenus.etsy.com. That's a goddess who's bad at housekeeping.etsy.com. I got movie monsters who love kittens. I've got your field guide to movie worms. All kinds of fun stuff. I painted every single American Kennel Club registered dog breed. You can get it as a poster. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, take it away, Moxie. Thanks, Steve and Izzy, and thank you also for having me on your show recently. I do hope my listeners will pop over there and check it out. Naturally, humans aren't the only critters that rely on a complex cadre of intestinal interlopers. Take the koala. Please, take them. The ridiculous, smooth-brained chlamydia-having so-and-sos. Well, not only do koalas only eat the leaves of eucalyptus trees, they only eat the leaves of certain kinds of eucalyptus trees. Part of that may be because their gut microbes are specific to a particular subspecies of eucalyptus. Researchers studying koalas and other vulnerable species are trying to find out whether altering an animal's gut bacteria can increase their chance for survival. How do you do that? Through diet changes and fecal transplants. Yep, transplanted poop. For koalas particularly, that's not a novel concept. Baby koalas don't have the gut microbes necessary to digest eucalyptus, so they eat their mother's fecal pap, a protein-rich substance that comes out after the regular poop. I maybe should have put a warning on this section. Too late now. Researchers collected feces from 200 koalas at 20 sites across Australia and found that some koalas ate only the highly nutritious eucalyptus species known as manna gum, while others ate the less nutritious messmate. Only a thin sliver of subjects would eat both. And this isn't a regional thing. 
koalas living only a few yards apart would have different diets. The microbes in the different poops also varied according to the variety of plant, but correlation doesn't equal causation. To test whether the different leaves foster the microbes or the microbes determine the choice of leaves, researchers transplanted feces from six wild messmate-eating koalas into six wild manna-gum-eating koalas. After about two weeks, the manna-gum-eaters' microbes were nearly identical to the messmate-eaters. Some of them had even begun eating messmate on their own. Okay, but why are they doing this? Because, like almost every other non-pet animal on the planet, koala populations are diminishing from things like habitat loss. You can't simply relocate them, because they may not have the specific type of tree they like to eat in their new home. These fecal transplants could mean that koalas could be preemptively acclimated to their new home. Understanding microbes lets us help some animals, while we can use it to hurt others. In our defense, the animal started it. The deadliest animal in the world by historic body count, the mosquito. Mosquitoes are a vector or carrier for serious illnesses like dengue fever, Zika, malaria, yellow fever, and more. The mosquitoes don't naturally carry viruses. They're not infected by them. They pick up viruses by biting infected people, and then incidentally inject them into the next person they bite. Well-to-do suburbanites might get their yards fogged, but how do you reduce the number of mosquitoes in a village, a region, or a whole country? You can't. But you may be able to reduce the number of viruses in the mosquito. The Aedes aegypti mosquito is the main transmitter of dengue, Zika, and yellow fever. They originated in Africa, but spread to tropical and subtropical regions around the world as insult upon injury during the Atlantic slave trade, as well as during mass migrations in Asia during the 18th and 19th centuries and troop movements of World War II. So these guys are everywhere. Or gals, specifically, since only the females bite, so they're the ones we need to worry about. Population growth and climate change are also boosting mosquito populations, which boosts the number of mosquito-borne disease cases. Dengue fever cases are 30 times higher than they were 50 years ago. We do have a weapon to bring to bear on this problem that we basically caused. Wolbachia bacteria. Wolbachia are common bacteria that occur naturally in more than half of known insect species, including certain mosquitoes, fruit flies, dragonflies, moths, and more. Wolbachia lives inside insect cells and are passed from one generation to the next. Aedes aegypti mosquitoes don't normally carry Wolbachia. Researchers found that when they introduced Wolbachia into the Aedes aegypti, the virus had to compete with the bacteria. The Wolbachia takes up enough space in the mosquito's system to keep the virus population low. Fewer virus cells, lower chance of transmission. So the World Mosquito Program breeds Wolbachia-carrying mosquitoes and releases them into areas affected by mosquito-borne disease. Wolbachia is safe for humans and for the environment. Unlike plans for genetic modification or introducing bacteria that would make the mosquitoes sterile, there are fewer environmental ramifications. Since the program began in 2011, some areas are dengue-free for the first time in decades. 
Speaking of good momentum, we're only halfway through the month, but there are already four new members at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. So a grateful welcome to Charles, Vadislav, Kay, and Paul. There are now 30 bonus mini-episodes up for all members to enjoy, because for the duration of the COVID crisis, which is still going on, y'all, wear your mask, all members receive all rewards. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. A more visible sign of the fact that we can't have nice things is plastic. We make it, we use it, we throw it away, and there it stays. Plastic makes up nearly 70% of all ocean litter, putting countless aquatic species at risk. Do you ever see that picture, side-by-side comparison of a jellyfish and a plastic produce bag? There is no way a sea turtle swimming by could tell them apart. Even when plastics break down, they turn into microplastics, which are even harder to remove from the environment. But there is a microscopic bit of hope. Scientists have discovered that certain marine microbes are eating away at the plastic. Researchers in Greece gathered plastic trash that had been on two different beaches for quite some time. The polyethylene, which is found in things like grocery bags and shampoo bottles, and polystyrene, hard plastic food packaging and electronics, had become brittle from being exposed to the sun. The team immersed both kinds of plastic in salt water with either naturally occurring ocean microbes or microbes that were enhanced with strains that could allow them to survive solely off the carbon in the plastic, and monitored both samples for five months. All of the plastic lost weight, meaning it had at least partially degraded. After five months, the researchers found the weight had reduced by between 7 and 11 percent. 
The bacteria affect plastic at a molecular level by secreting enzymes that speed up the chemical reactions that break down the polymer chains that make plastic so durable. You might be expecting to hear that the engineered microbes wiped the floor with the natural ones, but in fact the bacterial communities that were native to that beach with its plastic litter performed the best. This is perhaps unsurprising since previous reports also suggested bacteria may be evolving to eat plastic. Now this doesn't mean that the problem is solved when it comes to plastic waste. We can't put our feet up and wait for bacteria to eat the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is currently half the size of the continent of Australia. 300 million tons of plastic are produced annually, half of which is single-use. So carry your own shopping bag, avoid single-use plastic when you can, and for the love of all that's holy, will you please recycle your water bottle? We're also not doing any favors for the delicate ecosystem of the coral reef. Even if global warming doesn't exceed 2 degrees Celsius, it could still take out more than 70% of coral reef ecosystems. Since corals are fixed in place, they need bacteria and other microorganisms to fill roles in nutrition, metabolism, and immune defense to allow them to thrive in their environment. The beautiful coral that you saw on your last snorkeling trip has a skeleton made of calcium carbonate, and living within that are symbiotic algae called zooxanthella. The algae use photosynthesis to produce energy and nutrients that the coral needs to survive. The zooxanthella are what gives coral their color, and coral bleaching is what happens when the coral gets stressed and the zooxanthella dies. Studying the roles that microbes play is crucial to understanding how coral are affected by environmental stress, and how coral communities will be able to handle ongoing climate change. Associate Professor Tracy Ainsworth of the University of New South Wales is researching not only coral that has bleached, but also corals that have bounced back. Some corals are better than others at maintaining their beneficial microbes when the going gets tough. But beyond that, the bleached corals have microbiomes dominated by unhealthy microbes. The coral that manage to recover have much lower levels of these pathogenic bacteria and can maintain a microbiome more similar to the normal healthy ones. Ainsworth and her colleagues found that during times of increased water temperature, coral on the Great Barrier Reef have been able to protect themselves from heat stress. There's also evidence that the coral have adapted to increases of temperature in the past, albeit more gradual ones than they're facing now. Therein lies the problem. The coral don't have time to develop the resistance to heat stress, and it only takes a temperature increase of half a degree Celsius for bleaching to start. Their microbiome can't keep up, so if we want to save the coral reefs, we need to slow global warming. Naturally, coral aren't the only things living symbiotically with microbes down where it's wetter. Take the deep-sea vesicomiid clam that live beside hydrothermal vents on the ocean floor. Clams are filter feeders, straining tiny organisms like plankton out of the water. But food is scarce at the depths where they live, as great as 5 miles or 7,000 meters underwater. They survive thanks to microbes that live in their oversized gills, and oxidize the sulfur from the hydrothermal vents. The bacteria harness the sulfur's energy to support both themselves and the clams. The clams get the energy, 
and the bacteria get a safe place to live. We've made messes much closer to home than the garbage patch or the Great Barrier Reef, unfortunately. Ever heard of Superfund sites? It sounds like super fun, but it's super fun duh. And I didn't know about them either until this week. Prior to the 1970s, toxic waste was handled a lot like regular garbage, with the most common practice being to bury it. When developers built houses on top of one such dump in Love Canal in upstate New York, people found out the hard way that out of sight is not out of mind. The chemicals began to bubble to the surface. Children would be burned by them while playing. It infected the groundwater. Miscarriages and birth defects were common, and the rates of cancer were markedly higher than in the population at large. Love Canal is the best-known site, but it's far from the only one. Thousands of contaminated sites exist across the country thanks to manufacturing, processing, landfills, and mining. In 1980, in response to Love Canal and similar incidents, Congress established the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, informally called Superfund, for reasons that were not clear. Superfund allows the EPA to clean up contaminated sites and forces the parties responsible for the contamination to either clean up their mess or pay for an EPA-led cleanup. Like with ocean plastic, the Superfund sites are a big problem that microbes could play a part in helping us solve, this time by way of the poplar tree. Groundwater pollution is a major problem around these sites. Ordinary poplars are sometimes planted to help remove trichloroethylene from lightly contaminated groundwater, but they can only do so much. Sharon Doty, a plant microbiologist at the University of Washington, and her colleagues genetically modified a poplar to cope with higher levels of TCE. Doty's team started by crossbreeding two poplar species. They collected an enterobacter strain called PDN3 from a Wisconsin poplar cutting and soaked their hybrid saplings in it, planting them alongside untreated trees as a way of control at three heavily TCE-contaminated Superfund sites in Northern California. By the way, if you want to see how close the nearest Superfund site is to you, there's a link in the show notes and on the website. There are 35 in my state alone. Three years on, and the benefits of Doty's experiment were clear. The soil around the inoculated poplars had 50% more chlorine ions than the soil around the control trees. Chlorine ions are harmless leftovers from broken-down TCE molecules. The trees managed to lower the surrounding TCE concentration until it was below the EPA-mandated drinking water limit. The microbe-enriched trees also grew better with 30% wider trunks. Doty's team is now trying to figure out which gene enables the PDN3 to pull this off, and to see what other plants the bacteria could work with. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. After all that, it should be pretty clear how important microbes are to our lives and to life in general. Without gut bacteria, we'd have a hard time digesting our food, as would the animals we rely on for food, like cows. Without nitrogen-fixing soil bacteria, crops would begin to fail, especially corn, which is so prolifically common it's even used in cardboard. Decomposition would stop, waste would pile up, and the nutrient recycling that supports life as we know it would end. 
So wash your hands to kill the coronavirus, but give a nod of thanks to the rest of your microbiome. Remember, you can always find the script and the research sources for the episode at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Hi, I'm Mike from the Genuine Chit Chat Podcast, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. I speak to a wide variety of guests, including CEOs of businesses, psychologists, authors, musicians, travellers, people suffering with physical and mental illnesses, and everyone in between. Where we speak about a large variety of topics, including music and movies and pop culture, but also some more controversial topics, including drug reform, political correctness, and many more. No subject is off limits. You can find us in all the usual podcast places, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, as well as on YouTube. And you can follow us in all the usual social media places. And to be clear, I don't expect everyone listening to enjoy every episode of my show. What I do think is that due to the wide variety of guests and topics, that there'll be at least one episode that each person listening will enjoy. So if you still appreciate the art of conversation and want to hear honest conversations with interesting people, then be sure to check out Genuine Chit Chat in all the usual places. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.